Before we uh, begin with a word of prayer, let me uh, just give you a brief recap of where we're at. Uh, for those of you who haven't been with us recently, or the Rogers Park folks who are trying to catch up, you guys were here at the beginning of the Ezra series, I believe, last time in September. Uh, so we've completed Ezra, we've now moved into Nehemiah, uh, which were originally one book together. And uh, where we're at, we're, we've, we've seen uh, the return of the exiles, uh, the Jewish exiles who had been carted off into Babylon. Uh, we've seen them come back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, as God had promised they would after a 70-year period of time. And uh, as they've come back under the leadership of Zerubbabel uh, and Ezra, they begin to build the temple again in Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this point has been completely sacked. Uh, so it's a, just a city in rubble and ruin. Uh, the temple was destroyed. They're rebuilding the temple. And the purpose of rebuilding the temple, of course, is that the presence of God dwells with His people in the Old Testament in the temple. So they're, they're looking to come back not just into the land, but into the presence of their God, into right worship of God. So they build the temple. Uh, they begin to uh, see reform then in worship. Ezra comes in. Ezra is a skilled teacher of the Word of God. This is a group of people who have not had teaching for, from the Word of God, most of them in their whole lives. And so he begins to teach the Word and we see a reform. We see a revival in the people. They begin to, uh, to, to repent of their sin and, and say they want to follow after the Lord. And, and each time they, these things are occurring, something good is happening. There's opposition that's coming right? and, and trying to undo it. But God is faithfully continuing to do this work in His people. And then we get to Nehemiah's uh, book. And in Nehemiah's era, which is the same as Ezra, their contemporaries, uh, he comes just a little afterwards, and and Nehemiah, in chapters one and two, is uh, is actually in Persian, uh, the Persian government. He's still back where they were. He's in the courts of the king there, Artaxerxes in Susa, the city of the capital, and he's the cupbearer to the king, the Persian king, and he gets word from some of his Jewish brothers that the city back home, Jerusalem, is still completely in ruins. The people aren't doing very well. And it, it just breaks his heart. He, he cries out to the Lord that God would, would do something. Uh, and he begins to ask if, if there's something that he needs to do. And the Lord leads him to go in front of the king, risking his life to do so, and say, would you send me back? Would you let me go back? I, I, need, to, I need to rebuild this city. My, my homeland, my brothers are in peril. Uh, and the king allows him to go. So we see that whole interaction in chapters 1 and 2. And at the end of chapter 2, we get this little hint that back in Judah, there are enemies. Uh, the nations that are surrounding them are still there and that they're not happy about this, this idea to rebuild Jerusalem. And you get this little hint at the end that trouble's lurking. Trouble's lurking. So now as we head into chapters 3 and 4, we're going to kind of run into that. They're going to start building this wall around the city and we're going to see the trouble. And I've titled the sermon, Trust God and Pick Up Your Shovel. And right now that doesn't mean a whole lot, but it will as we continue. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and this opportunity to gather together as Your people and just to sit under it. Lord, we know that when we sit under Your Word, we're not just sitting under a book, we're sitting under You. These are Your words to us. This is 
authoritative and powerful, Lord. This is us in communication with the God who created it all and who loves us. Lord, You have a Word for us this morning. So I just pray, Lord, that by Your Spirit You would illuminate our minds and hearts to receive Your Word. To, Lord, especially this sermon and this day and this audience, Lord, encourage us. Encourage us. And give us a vision for how we live in our own day in the same uh, kinds of opposition that we're going to read about in Nehemiah chapter 4. So Father, I'm trusting You to, to use me as Your agent and vessel this morning. Lord, just meet with us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So life, this life we live, is uh, it's full of ups and downs, right? It's a roller coaster. Life is a ride. Can I get an amen? If I was, if we were in, in a, if I was a black preacher, I should say, I'd probably say something to you like, "Whoa, I'm not. I know," but I'd probably say something like, "Turn to your neighbor right now and say, life is a ride.'" Right? I was listening to somebody preaching this week, an African American preacher, and I loved that about the way he was preaching in the congregation. He would say to them oftentimes, "Just turn to your neighbor," and he'd ask them to repeat something that he said, and they did it. And I thought, "Man, I wish I could do that. <laughs> I want to do that. I can." All right, turn to your neighbor and say, "Life is a ride." Amen. Thanks for indulging me that. But it's, it's full of ebbs and flows, and, and you know that. You live life. You, you, you see that. that life is ebbs and flows. There are seasons of, of, of blessing and prosperity. There are seasons of despair and trial. And, and you know, just when you think that you've kind of landed in one and you're stuck there, something happens and you, 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 know, you just keep going up and down. And the thing about uh, ebbs and flows that I want to encourage you with this morning is that ministry, and I mean ministry in the sense that all of us as believers are called to it, is really no different. Following after the Lord is no different. It is a season of ebbs and flows. Can I get an amen? amen. That's life. And, 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 and so when we're seeking to follow after the Lord, the, the thing that we, we, we have to remember is that we're still uh, you know, in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. We, we fit into this era that's sort of uh, been referred to as the, the, the already but the not yet. Christ has come. His kingdom has been inaugurated. There's, there's evidence of God doing His kingdom-building work through the resurrection of His Son and the, be the beginnings of the church and the growth of the church over 2,000 years. So much of the kingdom is in, is in play, is in action, but it's, it's not yet fulfilled. We're still waiting for Him to come back and, and then really establish the kingdom of God on earth, a new earth the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22 that we see, right? So we got this already not yet tension that we live with. And the thing that we have to remember, the key for us to remember is that uh, as we're living in the already and we see those ebbs and flows, we have to remember the reality of the not yet. That it's real. That it exists. It's coming. It is a promise. Even though it's not yet, right? That's the key for walking the Christian life. We, we live in the already, but we remember the reality of the not yet. So here's the main idea of the, the passage this morning with all that in mind. And it was something Jeremy actually said uh, at the beginning of the service. Very much the same kind of language here. 
Even when spiritual opposition seems overwhelming. That, that means that you're living in the, uh, the already, but the not yet, right? There's still opposition. There's still the forces of sin in this world and Satan in this world. And he's very much opposed to the work of God and you, his people. Even when spiritual opposition seems overwhelming, trust God and set your mind, set your mind to keep on working towards accomplishing what He's called His people to do for His glory. Okay? Trust God and keep on working towards what He's called His people to accomplish for His glory. Nehemiah chapter 3. We're not going to read it uh, or spend a lot of time in it. Uh, if you're looking at it, you'll see that it's basically a list of names uh, and tasks. Uh, we're seeing the beginning of the wall. Nehemiah has scoped out the wall in chapters 1 and 2. He's kind of seen the disrepair. He's seen what it needs to, to have happen in order to be rebuilt around the city of Jerusalem. God's city, right? The city surrounding the temple. And, and he comes up with a plan. He starts asking different leaders, different families, different groups of people in the city to begin getting to work and building portions of the wall. He comes up with this uh, very uh, uh, good plan of just giving little tasks and assigning different sections. I want to show you, uh, this is this is what the city, if you can see that very well, this is what the city would have looked like. Uh, if you see the kind of the, the full outlying area here, this would have been the original city of Jerusalem before the Babylonians had sacked it. And then when they came back and they started to rebuild, this is the temple up here in the temple courts. And then the, the new wall of Jeremiah, of, uh, Jer- uh, excuse me, Jeremiah, I keep wanting to say Jeremiah, Nehemiah. The new wall of Nehemiah's day would be this structure that we're seeing here, okay? So you can see it's a smaller city than had been there before. There's less people who have come back to inhabit it at this point. Their need is to build security and safety around where they're at right now. So it's a, it's a bit smaller. And I'm going to advance to a new slide and that's that same shape of the city. And chapter three is basically telling us all these different groups of people had been assigned different sections of the wall and this is what it would have looked like as they were working. All right. So they're all just kind of working together. They've all been assigned and they've got this goal of seeing the whole thing completed as they all chip in and work in unity. All right. That's chapter 3. We head into chapter 4. We start getting into the meat of the story of what's happening here. And here's the first point. The first point is this. Satanic opposition is always lurking at the gate. Satanic opposition is always lurking at the gate. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat, and this is this is one of the guys that we saw at the end of chapter 2, one of the enemies one of the, the foreigners who was not happy about them rebuilding this. There's that hint of trouble coming with a guy named Sambalat and a guy named Tobiah. When Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah, the Ammonite, one of the other guys we saw in chapter 2, he was beside him and he said, 
Yes. What they're building. If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down the stone wall. So we got these mockers. We've got this opposition beginning to, to kind of come around and begin to throw insults and gather around with their armies around the city. And you might be thinking, well, this is just another ancient example of Middle Eastern conflict like we see today, right? These people are always fighting each other. Nobody ever gets along. This is just a, a one in the long line of constant Middle Eastern conflict. And well, there's some truth to that, but don't miss the underlying issue here. Look down at verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So you get this sense that it's not just Sanballat and Tobiah, but it's, it's actually all these different surrounding armies that normally would have not gotten along with each other. There's, there's one common thing that unites them. It's their disdain for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. It's the, their disdain for God's people. And they're now willing to actually come together, lock arms, and fight them. And so they're mounting and there's this sense of the surrounding of Jerusalem, the surrounding of Judah by the enemies. And it reminds me of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1-3. to Listen to this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what we're seeing happening here in Nehemiah chapter 4. The nations are raging and plotting, not just against Jerusalem, not just against the people there, but ultimately against the Lord. This is spiritual opposition. It's not just a bunch of Middle Eastern nations squabbling over land rights and political power. It's opposition to the Lord of heaven and His people by spiritual enemies and rebels before God. Okay? That's how we have to see this. This is, this is antichrist activity. When we look at the Old Testament and we see the nations, and we see lots of different references to the nations, it, they represent the kingdoms of this world under the power of Satan. Alright? Now saying that, I want to make clear that that's not a, a racist kind of thing to say. That's not discrimination. Uh, you know, all these other nations, the foreigners, they're all just representative of evil and Satan. Uh, wh what it is is just a statement of reality of, of who all humankind is. All mankind are sinners. or All mankind are presented to, to us as rebels before a holy God. And, and we, because of that rebellion, you know, we were scattered around the world and, and the nations were created out of that rebellion in Genesis chapters 10 and, and, uh, and 11. And, and so here's the, here's the thing. Everybody fits into that category, Israel included. They were in the table of nations there in Genesis chapter 11. It's just a statement of humanity. Humanity is under the domain of sin and Satan. But what we see happening in the Old Testament is we see that by God's grace, He calls Israel out from among the nations as the kingdom of God. So he's setting up in this dark world full of sinful nations one example 
again, of redempt, redeemed mankind. And so Israel's task under the, the, the good and rightful reign and rule of God was that they were, they were meant to be a missional community to the nations of what the good and rightful reign of Yahweh looks like. It's, it, it's, it's a light in a dark place. And that being the case, their very existence was a threat then to the domain of Satan. It was a threat to sinful humanity in that regard. And so Satan's number one priority was to wipe them out. Or at the very least, to render them ineffective. As we've seen throughout this Ezra-Nehemiah narrative, it's a pattern that repeats itself over and over again. We see God do something good with His people, and then opposition comes. And He does something good, and then opposition comes. And, and, and we're seeing it again. This is actually the third time we saw it. We saw it with the rebuilding of the temple. We saw it with uh, the reforms of worship. And now we're seeing it here again with the building of the wall. And it's not the last time we're going to see it. It's just a pattern. God's work, Satan's opposing over and over again. And what I want us to do is to note the motives behind the work and the opposition. Because it, will, it gives us a, a good picture of what the glory of God in the world is, is about. And at the same time, it gives us a, a picture of what the ugliness of Satan's objective in the world is through sin, through oppression, to wreak havoc on that missional light. Okay? So let's, let's talk about the, the, the motivation for God's people to be building this wall in the first place. Yes, the, the building of the temple, the reforms of worship, the building of Jerusalem, they're all about the glory of God. They're following after what God has called them to do, but, but, but don't miss this. They're also about the welfare of people. Okay? The, all this is not just about the glory of God. Under the umbrella of that, it, it's about the welfare of People. Remember, God's glory is defined by His goodness. If you recall Exodus chapter 34, remember Moses says to God, show me your glory. And what does God reply? He says, alright, I'll make my what to pass before you? My goodness. The goodness of God is the display of His glory. So if we look back at the reason for opposition to the building of this wall, if you flip back just a page or so to chapter 2, verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That's what they're upset about. They, they see this, this happening, this rebuilding and it's not just that they're upset that, that God's glory is being reestablished in this place, but they don't want the welfare of people. The, the word there for welfare uh, is, is tov in Hebrew. It's, it's the same word uh, that's translated as good in Genesis, in the creation account, when God made everything and He declared it to be good. Tov, right? This, this rebuilding was about the, the good, the tov, the welfare of the people. We could look at a, a thesaurus and see words like comfort, security, safety, protection, prosperity, success, fortune, interests, and good. 
And, and we recognize that this is a, this is what God's rightful reign and rule over his created ones is supposed to entail. God's rule brings welfare to his creation. Your prosperity, your safety, your security, your good. And I hope you see that this morning. God's, God's good reign and rule over humanity is for your welfare. But then we see Sambalat and Tobiah, on the other hand, who are against the people's welfare. These two agitators and their, their comrades are gathering all these different groups around. They stand to gain from the oppressive tactics uh, used towards God's people. They're not seeking their welfare. They're, they're, they're upset that the gates are being closed up in the walls because they're used to be able to go in and out and abuse, to uh, exert their power, their, their evil power over the people by, by taking their profits, by holding them down. They, it's like they've got their thumb on the people and they like it that way. And this is part and parcel to the effects of Satan in the world. And sin in the world. It's, 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 it's just, they got their thumb on us. Sin is not for your good and your welfare and your prospering. It's for your destruction. Satan's a bully. He's a bully. He's constantly trying to, to tell you all the reasons why you're not good enough. God doesn't love you, doesn't care. What's the point? I mean, it's like these guys on the wall. Like, just what are they going to do? These feeble people, these feeble Christians, these feeble Jews. And his agent uh, to carry out that bullying oppression is the enticement of sin. He wants us to take our eyes off of the goodness of God and, 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 and what it means to fall under the right reign and rule of God and, and walk with Him and, and just sin against all that. Just reject it. Satan's a bully. And Sanballat and Tobiah are bullies. Again, we see that in verses 2 and 3. It's just taunting. It's keeping their thumb on them. Right? It's kind of ridiculous, by the way, the, uh, the, the Tobiah comment. If a fox were to stand on that wall, the whole thing's going to fall down. You know, they, they've, they've excavated Nehemiah's wall, or at least portions of it, and they found that it was nine feet thick. That would be quite a fox, right? <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's, again, it's not truthful. It's just bullying. You want to you build something for the glory of God? Right, we we see that kind of bullying and discouragement ongoing throughout the church age. We 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 see that today. We can experience that today when you're trying to to build something for the glory of God. Right, we're trying to do something for the glory of God, and we we may hear something like, "You want to build something for the glory of God in Edgewater, in Rogers Park." What are you feeble Christians doing? Don't you know that, that this city is the domain of the devil? Has been for generations. You're going to rebuild it? Really? You, you're going to revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? Burnt ones at that? 
your coworkers and your neighbors are going to laugh at you. They have no interest in your God. Your churches, if a fox climbed on them, they'd crumble. You ever feel that? What do we do? Well, follow the example of Nehemiah and the people here. Our first response is always, always, always prayer. Verse 4. After the taunts of Sanballat and Tobiah, Nehemiah says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. What do you do? God, do something. God, hear the prayers of your people. This call to prayer has been demonstrated before in each of the cycles that we've seen throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. These oppositions that, that come up, we see over and over again their reaction is to pray. Ezra prays. Nehemiah prays. It's, it's the dependent recognition that, that we're up against spiritual opposition. This isn't just, again, human opposition. God, this is spiritual. We need You to do something about this. Only You, God, can expel that kind of opposition. Remember Mark 9.29 and the disciples have gone out and they've tried to witness and it's just they're getting beat up for it. And they come back and say, these demons aren't going anywhere. We're like trying to cast them out in Your name, Jesus. Nothing's... Happening and Jesus says, Look, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. Remember that? What's he saying? This is spiritual opposition, guys. This is spiritual work. This, this takes the power of God. That pattern tells us something that should be obvious. Yeah, we ought to pray, but in practice, tends to be forgotten, right? Prayer must be our first response. Always, always, always. Is that your first response in opposition? Now here's an interesting thing though to consider. We look at the language of Nehemiah's prayer and it it, it brings up some questions. How do we reconcile this imprecatory prayer which is clearly against these enemies, right? God Turn it on their heads. Let them go into exile, right? This is imprecatory in nature. How do we reconcile that with Jesus' words in Matthew 5 when He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Nehemiah is praying against them, right? Jesus says, pray for them. How do we reconcile that? In other words, should we pray like Nehemiah did? That's a good question. But I want to say this, let's be careful not to read this as a direct contradiction to Jesus' commands for us. What Nehemiah is praying is for God to do justice against sin. That's what he's ultimately asking for. Do justice against sin. 
And God can accomplish that any way He wants to. Right? God could choose to do justice against this sin by causing Sambalat and Tobiah to repent. To come to faith, right? Or God could choose to just judge them outright. That, that is God's prerogative. And Nehemiah doesn't presume to tell God how to do that. He just says, he pleads, God, just do justice. Just do justice. And so I want to say it's okay and it's right for us even to pray similarly. God, put a stop to the injustices in our city. God, stay. Wicked men and women who would oppose your work and your people, God, do that. Hold back the influence of satanic forces here. Bring about justice, God. And it would be equally good and right for us to say, and God, if you would do that by causing them to, to come to faith, to repent of sin, to bring about revival, then God, may you do that. But again, it's God's prerogative. Pray for them. But it's okay and right and good to pray against the injustices of sin in the world. We must entreat God just to conquer the power of darkness and its agents any way God just do that. We should pray like this more often. It should be our first response. We should pray like this regularly. And we should pray like this corporately. That's what they did. Look back at verse 6. So after this prayer, Nehemiah goes on to say, so we built the wall. Good for them, by the way. Right? They just went back to it. They kept working. And the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the, and the Amorites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it, what happens? And we prayed to our God. And we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So we saw originally Nehemiah prays, but now we're seeing all of them are doing that, right? We, corporately, they were praying, God, stay wickedness, do justice, and they kept on going. So that's our first response. Prayer. Now, can we just get real for a minute? and talk about what's likely to happen even in the midst of us praying and working towards the end of seeing God be glorified in dark places? You ever getting dis got discouraged? Discouragement's likely. Discouragement in the face of opposition is likely. Right after this, we see verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. So we got discouragement setting inside the city. Verse 11, and then outside, our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So the taunting's still going on, and they're hearing it. Verse 12, and at the same time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, so the people who are not in the city, but the Jews who are outside the city in the surrounding villages, they're seeing all this opposition. They're seeing the armies mounting up. 
And it says 10 times they came into the city and said, guys, guys, put down the bricks and get back out here. We're the front line here. We're in trouble. Come back. They're scared. Now, all these reactions by the Israelites are presented as acts of faithlessness, and they are. And Nehemiah is going to speak to them as such in a moment. But I, I want to just pause on that and, and just get real and say, you know what? It's quite naturally human to get discouraged in times of oppression. If you or I were there, I, I think we'd be there with these folks going, ah. And it's worth noting the two kinds of discouragement here so that we can relate to them and then take the coming encouragement for ourselves as needed. What do we see happening here? The first one is we see weariness and it's accompanying hopelessness, right? The, the, the workers in, in the city are saying, there's just too much rubble. We, we get this idea that they're working and, and they're, they're just, they're bearing the burdens on their backs. They're physically exhausted. They're wiped out. You ever feel like that? You feel like that right now? You're, you're in the midst of trying to do something for the glory of God. You're, you're doing ministry. You're working in the church. You're, you're, you're doing whatever it is that, that God has set before you. And at times you just go, gosh, I'm just tired. And you look around and you say, this, 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 this task is too great. This rubble is too much. Can't do this. We get weary. And then it leads to the second thing we see, which is, is, is sort of this fear that breeds a retreat attitude. These people who are coming from the outside, like, just let's just quit. All right? This isn't worth it. Let's get out of here. You know, the grass is a little greener outside of the, the threats of, of this difficult task. And I'll admit, I felt like that sometimes, right? Doing, doing ministry in a church, doing ministry in an urban setting. Sometimes you just kind of go, man, wouldn't it just be nice to, to go back to being a banker like I used to be? Nine to five hours? That sounds pretty good. That house in the suburbs with the big grass and the pool and spending my weekends mowing the lawn instead of caring for people? Whew. Just lay it all down, man. Let's get out of here. And we're constantly being tempted to do that. That's what, that's what's happening here. There's discouragement and there's fear. And, and it's like, let's just go. Let's forget it. There's retreat. But again, it's, it's presented here as faithlessness. And it is. All right. It's natural. It's real. But it's faithless. And so Nehemiah has to address this. And what is he going to say to his people? What do you do in the midst of that kind of discouragement? Number four, trust God and keep on keeping on. That's the message here. Trust God and keep on keeping on. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> so, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I arose and I said to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your wives, your daughters, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, 
and that God had frustrated their plan. By the way, that's an answer to prayer, right? God had frustrated their plan. They, the, the Jews knew that they were planning to attack. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields and the bows and the coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side when he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we're separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Keep on keeping on, guys. Yep, we've got threats out there. Okay, pick up your sword in one hand. We'll work with the other one. Need a little sleep? Don't put your PJs on. Keep your clothes on. Trumpet blows. We all get together, right? But we're going to keep on keeping on. Why? Because we've got to trust God. Because God, this is God's work. This is God's glory at stake here. God has called us to this thing and God will see to it. He'll fight for us. Keep on going. What does this mean for us? Listen, we're about to come to this table. Just a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. And, and, and oftentimes when we do that, at least here at Edgewater, I think the thing that we talk about most as we take the table is we talk about this table as a representation of Christ's body and blood shed in an atonement uh, capacity. In my place, condemned he stood, right? He, he bore the wrath of, of God against human sin, our sin on himself, so that by him bearing that, we could be forgiven. We talk about that aspect of the atonement a lot, and we should. That's good doctrine. That's, that's a, that's beautiful, right? But there's another view, uh, not, not a, a competing view in any way, but a, but a, a coexisting view of, of what happened at the cross that is so important for us to talk about this morning. All right, And that view is this one. Christus Victor. All right? Meaning this. Christ's death defeated the powers of evil which had held humankind in their dominion. Christ's death didn't just satisfy God's wrath for your sin, but at the same time, He defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan at the cross and by the resurrection. He is victorious. We, re we need to remember that. And, and, and go back to Psalm 2. In fact, if you want to flip over there, it's just a, a couple of books over to the right. Psalm chapter 2. You remember I read earlier 
The first three verses, why did the nations rage and the people plot and gain? They, they set themselves up against the Lord, right? They, we get this picture of the, of the evil nations kind of mocking and, and gathering. So we're going to cast off the cords of the Lord from among us. You know what the rest of the psalm says? It says Christus Victor. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Remember Sambalat and Tobias? They're looking at the wall. They're looking at this. And you get this, you get this picture that they're just kind of barreling over with gut laughter. The wall of a fox were to go on it. <laughs> right? They're raging. And, and, and what does the psalmist tell us? God's up in heaven going, <laughs> I'll laugh. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You don't think much of this city? Guess what? I put my king there. And, and I think in Nehemiah's day, that was him. The anointed. Is, is we see it over and over again as, 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 a, as, a, as a, not just Jesus. We think of Jesus as the anointed one. In fact, your, your Bibles is probably capitalized. But the anointed one, the son of God in the Old Testament is often the kingly role. David was the anointed son of God. Solomon, the anointed son of God. Not, not the, the exact and complete expression of that. Jesus is ultimately that, right? But here's God saying, this is my city and I'm going to build my kingdom here. I'm doing it now in Nehemiah. And I'm ultimately going to do it in Jesus. And I'm laughing at your derision. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's the knowledge that Nehemiah leads his people with to get back to work, even if it means you've got to carry a shovel in one hand and a spear in the other one. He's saying this, look, know the Word. Know this God that we serve. Satan is not going away. Not until Jesus comes again. We, we know that, right? But trust God. He's won. He will win. He will complete this thing. And we need to be prepared to go to battle against the schemes of the devil. We might have to carry a sword in one hand while we pick up a shovel with the other one. Now what's our sword? Don't pick up a real sword, okay? And I didn't tell you to do that. But Ephesians 6 tells us that we stand against the schemes of the devil today and the sword is the Word of God. So we hold the Word of God in one hand and we pick up a shovel with the other one and we believe God is going to accomplish His purposes. Get to work. I want to be real about where we're at and what we're doing. Alright, this is just... This is just real application for those of you in this room here today. We're trying to build a church for God's glory in our part of the city, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're not building a wall. We're not building a city. But God has called us here to be a part of building His church. Now, I, 
I don't mean to say that God doesn't build the church. He's building the church, but he's placed us here as his agents to make disciples and to build it. That's what we're doing here. And we're prayerfully seeking to build up our existing church, and we're simultaneously aiming to plant another congregation in this community. And so, those of us who are gathered in this room, I think we're, we're, we're aware of that. Rogers Park folks, Edgewater folks. And, and I want to just say this to you, Rogers Park, these are tough days, right? It, pastors have gone, people have gone, we're weary, we're tired, there's this sort of overwhelming sense of like, what are we doing? What are these feeble Christians doing? And I want, to, I want to tell you that for us here at Edgewater, it is no different. It's no different. We have the same struggles. People leave. We're surrounded by a, a, a community that just oftentimes feels like broken rubble and burnt rubble, and it's overwhelming. In fact, two churches are gathered here today and look at all these empty seats. So it can be discouraging. So we need to hear from Nehemiah. And we need to hear from God this morning. We serve a mighty God. And God has sent His Son to overcome the darkness of this world. God has sent His Son to build His church and His kingdom and it will be accomplished according to his purposes, it's, it's guaranteed. What does that look like in our context? Well, we'll find out. We are finding out. We've been finding out. But here's the thing, it's exactly as God has purposed it to be and will continue to be so unless God's people retreat and give up and forget that He's called us to be His agents here for His purposes. His reign and rule extend to Edgewater and Rogers Park. He's not forgotten this place. You're here. We're here. He's not forgotten this place. We who once were broken down and burned up rubble have been revived by God as He builds His church. And again, His Spirit enables us to be His agents to add more stones to the structure he's going to see to it. So I have just one final encouragement to you. The sermon title I hope makes a little more sense now. And I want to say to all of us these simple words, trust God and pick up your shovel. We still got work to do. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank You as we look to this table, as we look to the cross, as we look to our own lives, Lord, we're reminded that Jesus conquers sin. Jesus revives and gives life. He calls people out of darkness and into light. I want to thank You, Lord, that You've placed us here in this time and in this place to be the light of Christ to Edgewater, to Rogers Park, to Chicago and beyond, Lord. 
And I just want to thank you, Lord, for your, your word this morning. It encourages us. Let it be a sustaining encouragement to us that we serve a mighty God and you've got a task and you've, you've called us to just pick up our shovels and keep going. Help us to be dependent on you. Help us to, to pray. Help us to pray for the revival of our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates and our city. But help us not to give up. And Lord, would you build something here? Build something here, Lord. Go beyond the, the structures that, that you've already put in place, Lord, and, and expand the wall, the territory of the kingdom of Christ in our community. Lord, draw more people to know you. Push out the power of Satan and darkness and sin. Lord, it's overwhelming, but you have overcome. So we plead with you, God, build your kingdom here. Let Jesus be treasured and known here. Let your people be filled and satisfied in Him. And let you be glorified through it all. Lord, as we still maybe doubt, as we still maybe feel weary, let us come to this table and be satisfied. Jesus is the victor. And He calls us to identify with Him and partake of Him in that victory. Thank You for that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.